0: We're seeing a lot of smaller people who are not necessarily doing this full-time, not necessarily doing this professionally, but they're a lot more passionate, a lot more authentic, and these start to get the marketing dollars as well, right? It's a super exciting space to be in as an entrepreneur. Everything changes all the time, so there are opportunities rising every
1: day virtually, and uh, yeah, couldn't be happier. My talk today with Vivian Garnes of Upluance opens up the possibilities of influencer marketing. The efficacy of it became apparent to Vivienne from his own experience in selling ties, a process that turned out to be much more effective once bloggers were involved. We're at a point where you don't need to involve yourself with influencers who have millions of followers. I mean, you can, it's just, it's not the starting point anymore. Not with the likes of micro-influencers and even nano-influencers at your disposal. Vivian Garnes, it is. Good to have you here in Ecomonics. How are you doing today? How are you feeling? I'm doing wonderful,
0: Joseph. Uh, thank you so much for having me.
1: And I'm uh, grateful to have you on as well. Today, we are going to be adding a new piece to the Ecom puzzle. And um, it, it, it's attached. One of the things that I talk about with the Ecom puzzle is that you know you, you, each piece brings its own uh, significance to it. But we also lose sight of the fact that in order for it to fit, there are other pieces that have to be attached to it. So Hopefully I won't, I don't drop that thread and you'll, my audience will understand what I mean by that. When we get into this, uh, just a quick bit of housekeeping. Um, to my audience, I'm probably going to sound a little bit different today. I was in a situation where they were drilling right outside my apartment, so it's either go into the echoiest room that I can find in the apartment or deal with the drilling. And so we're going with echo today. And I have already warned my guest that hopefully nobody comes in to play the game of cribbage because that's going to be awkward. And I'll just we'll just cut, get up after this. All right, housekeeping out of the way. So first question: Tell us what you do and what are you up to these days.
0: My name is Vivian, as you said, Uh, I'm 33 years old. I'm French, as you can probably hear, non-native English speaker, apologies for that. I'm the father of almost two kids um, uh, because uh, my wife is in the ninth month of uh, pregnancy. I'm the husband of one, and my wife hates that joke. Uh, I have more of a business background. Uh, I studied uh, in business school, both in the UK and in France. And I'm uh, actually wrapping up a part time PhD as of right now. And I'm calling from the beautiful city of uh, Lyon in France. Uh, so that, that's sort of me personally uh, on a more professional uh, side of things. I'm a co founder and co CEO at uh, Abfluence, and we're an influencer marketing software. Company. And our mission is uh, to help e commerce companies in general to sell more online. And we do, va- do, do that via the prism of social media creators. So, in a way, I guess we have a very similar mission, a very similar objective than the uh, Beautify, uh, meaning that we help e commerce growth, uh, even though we do it via different means.
1: It's rather significant means as well, especially if you look at the emergence of... I mean, you have have social media that emerged, I would give it, what, like 10 years, but it continues to emerge even within itself in terms of accessibility and also in terms of uh, its... Uh, It's ability to hold on to people's attention. Um, At one point, it was just images and posts. Now it's interactive experiences. You have people shooting in 360 degrees. You have uh, stories. You have narrative. You have arcs. And it's continued to reflect the human experience far more accurately than at one point. Um, I'm 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 letting a few threads just uh, out into the ether because um, one thing that comes to mind is, you know, you hear about, you know, what, what you see on on social media isn't always a reflection of reality. Sometimes it's, you know, it's exaggerated or something like that. And I think that's actually um, diminishing over time because it is so easy for people to pick up the phone, um, turn it on, do a story, and then flick it off. Like, I, there's not much to exaggerate there because all they did is just, Briefly capture a point in their life or something like that. So, just some of my opening thoughts. Um, any, anything there that you'd want to comment on? And then I'm going to hit you with my next question. First, on
0: the evolution of social media and the landscape in general. You're absolutely right. When we started up front in 2013, it was all about blogs. You know that that sounds anachronical almost to, to to say that word today, but uh, still, you know, very true. That's how that's how it changed. Um, and. Not only have we transitioned to social media, we've changed content formats. We've changed almost everything about the platforms. And where we're really going is social commerce. So a very much a, a shoppable experience, right? When you can uh, buy directly in the product in the story, swiping up, and uh, you know Instagram checkout coming into play, and all this fun stuff that really have changed something, right? What used to be very long form educational now is very short form, ephemeral, and shoppable, right? So whole different ball game. I couldn't agree more with you. Now, in in terms of uh, sort of the ephemeral uh, nature of it, I believe that's exactly right. And in a way, ironically, we're almost getting back to what TV used to be. Uh, you know, when you look at the, you know all these uh, shoppable uh, TV shows like QVC and all that fun stuff. Um, we're almost getting back to that because the content, the content is becoming so ephemeral. you know, the window of opportunity is so short and then we're almost getting back to, you know, that live and that's why live content is emerging so much as well. Right. And that's been, I believe one of the fundamental psychological successes of it is that, uh, um, you know, uh, FOMO, right. Fear of missing out. Oh my God, this amazing opportunity I'm being presented with, it's going to disappear. The window of opportunity is closing. So that's definitely a big, uh, a big factor as well. And, uh, last, which was more, uh, in the background of your question, but, uh, it's the size of the opportunity. Uh, influencer marketing used to be an extremely niche thing. Uh, now it's huge. It's a multi-billion-dollar industry. It's still growing over thirty percent year over year. So it is it is massive. What I'm going to say is that I believe the value is sort of trickling down. So what uh, is arguable in politics uh, seems to be true in uh, in um, influencer marketing, meaning. It used to be that almost exclusively the marketing dollars were going to the bigger influencers, right? The the very top of the distribution tail of influencers. Um, Now what we're starting to see is that... um, brands are going down that long tail, right? They are working with influencers which are a lot more smaller, a lot more niche, uh, but who can yield very strong performance as a result, right? So we're seeing like a lot of smaller people who are not necessarily doing this full time, not necessarily doing this professionally, but they're a lot more passionate a lot more authentic. And these start to get the marketing dollars as well, right? Um, So I think that's a very interesting development. And all of this at the end of the day, to to wrap up a little bit my monologue, it's super exci- it's a super exciting space to be in as an entrepreneur everything changes all the time so there are opportunities arising every day virtually and uh yeah couldn't be
1: happier there's one association or, or one connection that i made in in your description um relating it to television if you look at the way television is structured so usually a tv shows scripted shows you know you have your a story and the and that's where as you say the majority of the resources in this case, you know, time, uh, is, is devoted to, to what, whoever happens to be the lead character for the episode. Then you have your B plots, maybe you have C plots, D plots, and each one of these while significant in their own way, and perhaps they connect to the, the larger story, they don't have the same level of resources. And, and I'm seeing a, a similarity here in, I guess the different hierarchies or the different, um, places that influences are now you still have like the, a, influencers. Uh, you have you know, you have your B plots, you have your C plots, and you, and you have your D plots. And what I think is uh, as the ability for the top level influencers have more uh, ability to well influence. Um, there's so many resources that data actually can't hold on to all of it. And so that's where I think the trickling is coming in, where now you have the ability for people in the B level uh, influence to actually have the same efficacy that the A's used to have. And so while the top is continuing to grow, what happens is that continues to give each uh, uh, part of the ladder below that more influence than they previously had.
0: So I believe that's exactly right. And to add to what you just said, I think there's a lot more tactical reasons as well that accelerated that uh, trend. A couple of thoughts here. It used to be that you know, the largest influencers were the only ones you could easily find, right? Because of the search features of all social media platforms or on Google, if you were looking for blogs, it was very top heavy, right? It was uh, mostly, we're always finding the top X influencers uh, in that space. What happened is that most of the brands were reaching out to only these influencers and that created a huge inflation on the prices as well, because they were solicited day in, day out, they, were, they could afford to be very picky and they had all the bargaining power as a result when some brands starting to question the efficiency of the marketing dollars being spent on these guys, right? Because on the other side of the equation, we know that a lot of social media platforms, the, social, the engagement rates tend to deteriorate as the size of the community increases. And so they were in this uh, situation where the supply was getting more expensive uh, you know, every day or every month. Uh, and at the same time, the performance was decreasing. So they were in a little bit of a dilemma. And the alternative working with small influencers was virtually impossible at the time because it was very hard to identify influencers. And working with 10 influencers with 100,000 followers was you know, 10 times the work as working with one influencer with a million. So they had sort of these overhead cost considerations to have as well. All of these changed progressively, took some time. But now with companies like Upfluence, uh, self shameless plug right here, uh, you know, we can really... Um, Lower the overhead cost, the marginal cost of working with one extra influencer, and so it becomes possible all of a sudden to work with hundreds or even thousands of influencers who have five thousand followers, ten thousand followers, twenty thousand followers, right? Micro or nano influencers. I think a few weeks ago I heard the word pico influencers, right? So we're we're always getting uh, getting uh, smaller and smaller in uh, in scale, and that really uh, combined with a higher engagement rate comparatively, more authentic content, but really uh, uh, completely shifted uh, the ratio that advertisers and uh, e-commerce companies were facing, which is a much greater performance for much lower costs. And so they were instantly ROI right positive as a result.
1: I think this is as good a time as any to um, uh, to ask you the, uh, the ecomonics uh, tradition. There's like three or four traditional questions. And um, so for your um, software uh, affluence, um, what I want to know is... The time of its uh, you know, inception and its creation, what perspective was it having on the market? What problem did it identify in particular that needed solving?
0: It's a little bit of an embarrassing story, but um, uh, I'm going to tell you how we got to the eureka moment, um, so to speak. So right out of business school, uh, I started working in a startup here in France. Uh, Great first job, but uh, I was uh, working directly with uh, uh, entrepreneurs and their entrepreneurial drive was very contagious. So I thought, "Ah, I'm going to start um, a little side gig, um, which I did with with a friend. Um, So we started... A couple of e-commerce companies were selling products online, and one of which—the main one—was probably selling neckties, right? We were looking for a product that was uh, no sizes, very little textile expertise, easy to ship, and so uh, we went for neckties. Uh, in spite of doing zero market research and the fact that there's you know, no one wears ties anymore, I think we, the both of us are pretty good examples of that. Um, Case in point, we had.
1: You you, you caught me on an off day. I do wear them on occasion.
0: Okay. Um, You you are a better man than I am. Um, And um, yeah, case in point, we had made a thousand beautiful silk ties in Italy. uh, And we tried to, we set up a website, we tried to sell them, and we could not sell them in an RI positive manner because the market was very fragmented. The acquisition costs were super high. So it was impossible to be. all right, positive on this. So uh, we had this box of 1,000 ties sitting in my living room, and we thought, all right, let's try to be decent entrepreneurs and find other ways to sell this. And we tried a number of things, most of which failed quite spectacularly. One thing that did work um, was to ship them to bloggers. Beg them basically to write a review. The review would drive traffic. Traffic would turn into clients. Clients would then, you know, even do repeat purchases. And we really started to see the unit economics of it all. And um, that's when we thought, wow, this is great. You know, even though it was not the term had not been coined yet, uh, influence marketing was not yet a thing. Still, we we saw that this worked. And potentially every e-commerce company in the world could benefit from this. We also identified a few problems along the way. Number one, it was super time-consuming. I was literally spending my nights on Google trying to find new blogs, keeping a very monstrous spreadsheet in which I had the email addresses, the postal addresses. You know, I was spending my my nights uh, harassing them basically after having sent the product to write a review. So it was very, very time-consuming and it could very well be automated at least streamlined at first. Number one. And number two, uh, we ended up making a few mistakes, sending a tie and hundred euros to a blogger who would uh, generate uh, 27 sessions and zero conversions. And and uh, you know at the time uh, we didn't have you know engagement rate followers. It was a little bit more of a, a feeling. And you know, we thought, well, this is very opaque. Wouldn't it be nice to have more of a data-driven solution to offer e-commerce companies the choice to choose which influencers we want to work with in what capacity and how. And uh, yeah, A plus B equals C. That's when we had the aha moment that yeah. You know what, let's start a company, a software company in that space. And uh, and um, that was uh, nine years ago now.
1: I know you listened to a couple of uh, episodes of mine, which I am uh, grateful for. And so I don't know if uh, you happen to listen to one where I I I actually just use textiles as an example. Anytime I just need to say like, oh, I'm just going to totally pivot and just get into textiles. I don't know why ever since high school for me, I always thought it was funny to just like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to get into textiles just at this Completely out of, uh, out of out of out uh, of left field um, pivot in whatever my career is. So uh, it's it's just it's, it's amusing to me to to have it brought up uh, actually in context for once. There's a lot of terms here, many of which we know. There's also some terms here that we could stand to have a little bit more clarity on. So one thing I want to set the record straight on is the with distinguishing, I guess, influencing versus uh, affiliate marketing. And on top of that, I happen to think that if I were to drop a Venn diagram there would probably be some crossover in the middle.
0: An influencer is a social media user who has a following and who has some editorial line, some voice uh, about a topic, right? That's in the broader sense of the term, but that's what it would be. And then that influencer can have a number of revenue models. He can sell sponsored posts, in which case he gets paid a flat fee for a certain content uh, that he has to post. Uh, He can be given products. He can be invited to events, maybe not so in the age of COVID, but uh, once upon a time it was possible. Uh, So it can be a number of value propositions. And one of these value propositions that the brand or the e-commerce company can offer the influencer is to have some sort of a revenue sharing model, meaning, hey, here's a coupon code or here's a track link. Here's something to attribute any sales that you would bring to you personally and for each of these you would be paid either a split for you know a flat fee or a percentage of commission on the sales and that uh, type of arrangement makes the influencer an affiliate so some affiliates may not be influencers uh, you know they might have other uh, audiences uh, to monetize uh, in an affiliate capacity that being said more and more influencers, are uh, hopping on the affiliate bandwagon, which is, I believe, a great development in the industry and was probably accelerated by COVID as well in the sense that a lot of influencers lost a lot of uh, partnerships with brands uh, for a little while because marketing budgets were frozen. And so they had to be a little creative uh, to to make up for lost revenue. And uh, so now we're in a situation where I think it's the best possible way to align the interests of both the brand and the influencer. Meaning, a, if you sell more, you'll make more money potentially a lot more than any, you know, capping at uh, a few hundred bucks, we would have done for a sponsored post. And at the same time, it minimizes the risk for the brand meaning, you know, I'm not going to pay an upfront uh, 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 investment for uh, something that may or may not yield results, right. Significant overlap in the Venn diagram between the two, that's absolutely right. One of them is more of a definition of you know, the characteristic of uh, one social media user. The other one is more of a revenue model or strategy that can be implemented between the brand and the influencer.
1: And see, this is what I was saying at the beginning about if you're going to put a piece of the e puzzle into the puzzle the corresponding pieces need to attach to it, which means that there has to be some significance as to why this piece fits there. And that's where, where I was going with this. So, you know, you talk about, um, I was I was surprised to, to, but I guess now that I'm thinking about it, I shouldn't have been. There, there's much more of a significant crossover between um, affiliate marketing and, and, and influencer uh, marketing. Um, so, so, so much so that the two have, uh, or the influencers transitioned into affiliate marketing given the circumstances. Now, this next one, Every once in a while, I'm going to ask a a silly question, but I happen to think it's the kinds of questions that, you know, a lot of people have on their mind. For me, the stigma of an influencer is as soon as I hear that word, I I think, you know, a model trying on clothing. uh, And my point of view doesn't seem to expand too far beyond that. So what I would like to hear is what are some of the some instances, examples of what people might not expect? Of an influencer when they when somebody describes one, I mean talking about people maybe are influencer in the tech space, influencer in uh, in development textiles, like where where perhaps the influencer expands that people didn't I think it would.
0: Fantastic question. So it's true that uh, the industry is very much attached to some. Verticals, the beauty industry, the fashion industry, the consumer technology space. Like all of these sort of make sense because we've seen a lot, you know, virtually impossible to go on YouTube uh, without seeing, you know, any of these, some unboxing video or some tutorial, makeup tutorial and things like that. Influencer marketing as a mechanic works very well for any consumer oriented industry, including some a lot less obvious ones. I'm going to tell you a true story about one of our very first clients when we launched uh, the company. It was a company manufacturing stethoscopes. For horses, because it turns out that horses have a, have a much thicker skin uh, than other animals, and so regular stethoscopes, which work for most animals or on cows, for example, don't work on horses. And so that company was crafting this particular specific. It was looking for, uh, you know, a very specific audience of vets, of course, but also you know people who work, who own horses or work, uh, you know, in uh, anything related to horses. And we're like, wow, this is going to be a challenge. But turns out there were at the time, a lot of blogs or early Facebook pages you know, that were specifically dedicated to uh, people who were big time into horse riding. And they happened to sell plenty and plenty of... Uh, or stethoscopes. So you know that can be some very unsuspected industries at, at times. But now if I, if I zoom out a tiny bit, we truly as a plant, have clients in a multiplicity of industries, pet food and financial services and like really anything that's uh, consumer oriented, even though it's not directly instinctive that is going to work well for influencers, uh, it will eventually.
1: I just want to acknowledge that i did laugh when, when you said when you said uh Coast for horses I, I was i wasn't sure to expect uh, specificity and so to hear just how i i don't think you can niche very much further down than that yeah, yeah. absolutely almost like, like i don't know like different different breeds have different uh skin levels i i don't know that's really as like as niche as i as i could have uh i could have guessed Actually, something uh, did come up. Um, this was one that I was keen on asking. So you, know, you said that this was one of your early clients. So given that you know, you're a, a software slash a service um, centered around marketing, is how were you marketing this at the beginning? And you know, were you able to apply the product that you were offering in such a way that you know, your offer was actually helping you market it it's like a positive cycle? Great question. So
0: I don't know if this translates well, but uh, in France, we say that uh, the shoemaker always goes barefoot. Um, And um, this was very true for us. We waited many, many years before doing influencer marketing for ourselves. Um, so eventually it did work, even though it's more in the B2B capacity. There are you know a lot of uh, social media users who share marketing tips. And because our product uh, is mostly addressed to SMBs, even though we have some great blue chip enterprise clients as well, of course, but um, you know that, that has worked really well. But at the beginning, we did not go that route uh, all that much. And truth be told, the term influencer marketing didn't mean anything to anyone. It was uh, had barely been coined. Um, and at first people came to us because they thought, oh, you know, blogs are great. I'm going to buy backlinks. And we had all the SEO people coming at us at first, but third, so we also thought, well, oh, you know, that's unexpected, but nice surprise up until the time where, uh, Google uh, started to get very tough on, uh, uh, do follow, no follow links. So basically a purchase link should not have any SEO juice attached to it. So it should be denounced sort of, so to speak in the code meaning uh, to have the no follow tag. And so we thought, okay, we don't want to risk anything. So we're google so we're going to send no to all this crowd of seo people moving forward and we have to really figure out how to make that work um, so i guess we went through the traditional um, marketing channels we were for the longest time almost exclusively inbound, meaning the way we marketed ourselves was uh, on you know uh, social media, uh, SEO, search, uh, paid search, uh, all that kind of stuff, where we're very good. Only in the more recent years we started to diversify a little bit more aggressively. Influencer marketing I uh, mentioned, outbound as well, so meaning our reps reach out to the perfect persona that we have identified in a number of companies to invite them to to see our products, but also partnerships. Um, we have some product partnerships with some great. Companies like Shopify, like Klaviyo. um, so great in the e-commerce uh, crowd. Of course, product partnerships, are more of a service par- partners. Uh, you know, people who want to deploy our solution in our clients and make a commission on in the process, and more referral partners as well. So we talked about affiliates, but very much the B two B equivalent of uh, affiliates. Um, so people who send us leads, and basically we close the leads. And so I would say that's pretty much the scope of how we go to market. How we market our products. Uh, fast forward to today.
1: You drew a distinction there that, um, at least as far as my active memory goes, I I have not recalled uh, anyone bringing up before. It should have, but it hasn't, which was, you know, the difference between inbound and outbound. And I don't want to go too far into this because this is uh, uh, getting a a little bit of a detour. But um, I I thought it was uh, interesting how, so when you say inbound, it's about trying to reach out to people so that they come to you right to 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 purchase yes A&M. that's
0: how to make yourself easy easy to find online that's a, a way i like to define it
1: right okay it's just uh the thing that sticks out to me is it's it's not as if um someone is just you know uh, opening a, a store and and even hoping for footbook traffic i think that there's always some degree of an outbound strategy, even within what would be considered inbound, because you still have to run ads, you still have to have some sort of a presence. So there's always some degree of um, reaching outwards in order to collect. So I think it might be about the delegation of how much uh, are we expecting the inbound traffic relative to our, uh, our, our output versus a lot of output. And then we don't have to worry too much about... We're not trying to reach... A breadth of people. We're just trying to reach, uh, you know, a depth of people. Because I think when you're doing outbound, it's more about here are our specific targets. Here are the groups of people or people in specific that we definitely want to acquire.
0: That's exactly right. It's two very different mechanics. For inbound, you don't really choose who finds you, which is a uh, beautiful in a way because you have you know new uh, uh, cohorts of people coming at you, new job titles, new type of companies, new industries. Um, and so that's great in, in the way that you don't limit yourself. That being said, you are limited by the volume of people who search for specific keywords or search for your company or your industry in general. So you're always dependent on that kind of volume. Outbound, like there's less volume. There's you know so many companies out there in worldwide uh, that you can reach out to. That this is great. You can really pinpoint. Who within these organizations and what kind of organization are you going to go after? Um, so, you know, it's a trade-off. Both of them have, uh, you know, upsides and downsides. But uh, uh, when you manage to have two
1: of these growth engines working really well for you, that's uh, uh, that's when it gets really fun. You also I meant just brief aside, which is the the term issue maker uh, tends to go barefoot. Uh, yeah, that, that translates, but um, the parallel based off my lived experiences don't get high on your own supply it's just you know they're different lived experiences this is where, where i come from now my next question is about the it's about the inherent value of an influencer okay so let's just say usually the go-to celebrity that i bring up in these cases is robert downey jr i think he's you know he's he's, he's popular enough and most people know who i'm talking about now he's a celebrity he's known for his work in film so if let's just say for instance he were to you know, in, endorse something, endorsements. That's that's a word I used to hear a lot back then. Don't hear it too much anymore. He's being an influencer as a byproduct of the work he's done. So people recognize his his value and they associate his value with whatever it is that he chooses to do with it. Like if he were to be an influencer of something where he were to promote something, even if he just happens to bring up something in Twitter, like, hey, I just had a Papa John's. All of a sudden, Papa John's stock goes through the roof. He wasn't even trying. Uh, and there's lots of celebrities that, Uh, that can fit that bill, not necessarily just him. So when we talk about an influencer, where is their inherent value coming from? Is it specifically that because they are active on social media and they participate in conversation that they build their ability to influence based off that behavior? Or do they have secondary or tertiary uh, pursuits or careers or some other way for them to gain uh, value that they can turn into influence
0: there's a couple of ways to look at this a first way which is uh, probably the more uh tactical <laughs> way to look at it is to think as an influencer it's all about number one the size of a community you manage to create number two how engaged that community is and number three how niche your content and as a result you know the interest that the uh, audience has in, in your content uh, really is And it's really a function of all of these three variables that makes the output, which is the value that the influencer can bring out there. And to develop a little bit more, uh, if you compare two influencers who uh, each have uh, 100,000 followers, let's say, uh, that can yield extremely different results, right? Let's say one of them has a very high engagement rate, the other one a very low engagement rate, that's already one difference. But even, even if they both have a 2% engagement rate, meaning the sum of the likes that generate on average per post plus the sum of comments, if we're talking about Instagram, divided by the number of followers, let's say they both have 2%. What we've seen what the data tells us is that these engagement likes and comments are extremely unequal um, in, in value. And an influencer who has a much higher concentration of comments as opposed to likes is actually a lot more likely and a lot more susceptible to drive higher performance. It's not exactly, uh, you know, surprising when you think about it, right? Uh, a comment shows a lot more involvement from your followers. It's, uh, it proves that your content is a little more maybe conversational or the audience is a lot more engaged. It's also a lot harder to f- falsify. I uh, have a lot of fraud about click, you know, click farms, uh, or, uh, robots that uh, falsify clicks. Um, it's a lot. Harder to have, you know, a well-structured comments that's uh, generated by uh, someone in China or uh, a robot, uh, in that sense. So I think for all these reasons, um, that's sort of uh, why we've seen this. But also breadth of the content of the editorial line of the influencer. You know, let's say uh, Robert Downey Jr. He speaks about a variety of things, and uh, Papa John's uh, Pizza is not, you know, necessarily his forte. From time to time, he will mention food. Uh, maybe his audience is not as receptive to Papa Joe's or to pizza or to food in general that they might be to an influencer who exclusively speaks about uh, Italian cuisine, right? And so being extremely niche usually tends to correlate with a lot stronger uh, performance because that's what the audience came here to see. And so uh, even though there they might be a little bit more fatigue, meaning this is always the same thing, there's also a, a, a much stronger resonance uh, with them as a result, right? I hope that makes sense, but um, yeah, uh, it, yeah, it,
1: that that helps. I mean, so one thing to uh, to point out here is, as as you say, so if someone is is passionate about food, they can go to someone much more uh, significant in the in the food space. So it, I think in order for again, um, uh, RDJ to have the maximum influences, he would probably have to promote a movie or a film or a TV show, something within his Absolutely. wheelhouse. So yeah. say, hey, yeah. I've I've been in these movies, so I know I know what good movies are. And this movie, this is a good movie, and so that. You have different results based off their. I mean, it's it, it's rather uh, uh, commonsensical now that I uh, put it all together in my head. Now you've been mentioning is is data, and by the way, I, I appreciate any time that you say uh, tactical. It's like, oh, okay, yeah. Now now we're, now we're getting into the uh, the the hard data here. So there are three data points that I uh, picked up on when we were looking through your profile and. But I say we, I mean, my producer, Micah, she goes on to LinkedIn. I have paranoia regarding LinkedIn because LinkedIn tells you who's been wearing like, I don't, I don't like that. So she's, uh, she has a spine. I don't. But anyway, so there was social data, brand affinity and authenticity. Social data, I'd have to even based on what you've described so far. And I'm, you know, I have to put things together in my head. I, I can, I can guess what, what that is, but I'm probably gonna have to ask you what that is. The one that stuck out to me other than that is authenticity. Uh, authenticity is a tricky one to quantify and you've touched on this a little bit so for instance we talk about you know vetting um you, you can tell more engagement based on comments rather than likes because comments are a little bit harder to fabricate it can be done but i think you can you can you can smell a fabricated comment from a mile away where it's either like great or i i, I love this or so we're going to put it all together so First part, social data. Can you uh, tell, tell us what, what that is? Um, and if you have to bring up stuff you already mentioned, I'm sorry, but you know, I just need to help understand.
0: Yeah, it it is a broader term to a lot of what I've already talked about. Uh, The number of followers, the number of engagement, the engagement rate in general. Um, All these metrics can be put in time series as well. So you know, it's not meant to be seen as something static. It's very dynamic in nature. So is that influencer growing month over month? Its uh, engagement or its uh, following base, or is it not? What's the best time of the day and day of the week for that influencer to post so we can maximize. So that that sort of encompasses all of this, but it's very, uh, I would say uh, introductory. Authenticity can be quantified in two ways in in my mind. Number one, um, the efficiency of content and number two, the saturation. We going to start with the latter. Let's say that an influencer publishes uh, once a day versus one that publishes three times a day. They both have, uh, you know, the same social data. They have the same following, the same engagement, same uh, comment-to-like ratio, and so on and so forth. Now, one of them is going to uh, might, as a you know, some generate more engagements and more views and all that stuff if he publishes three times as much. However, broken down by post individually, the one that uh, posts a little bit less will be performing less, right? So saturation is an interesting thing when it comes to really analyzing an influencer to work with um, because you want to see if your posts as as an e-commerce company you're going to uh, work with with influencer on, is it going to be drowned in the vastness of uh, content uh, or is it going to stand out because it's more one of many? So that's one thing that's very easy to measure and that's quite significant. The other one is the efficiency. So here, the way we approach this is we take a baseline, which is all the organic posts that the influencer publishes. Meaning, uh, you know, when he posts something that's not mentioning any brands, not um, not a sponsored post in any way, capacity, shape, or form. You know, just something organic. And this con- content uh, represents the baseline. And then you can break down for any collaboration with a brand: is it performing the same, less, more than the baseline? And that's super interesting because we see very different behaviors. Depending on the influencer, but also depending on the brand they work with, and that's when you can really uh, not only determine the authenticity of a content. So does that content uh, is it liked by the followers more or less than you know uh, an authentic the, an organic post would be? But also I'm going to touch based on the last thing, which is the brand affinity. Is the brand a good fit for that influencer or not? There's, you know, many ways it can be measured. Uh, before you can compare the audience data of influencer versus the brand, so you know, are they both followed by a majority of uh, uh, ladies over, you know, males, or is it uh, what kind of age bracket? Is it uh, 25 to 35 years old, or uh, where are they, you know, based? Are they all geolocated into the US uh, as opposed to Canada or France or whatever, right? So that already gives you a very good sense of. How strong a fit is the influencer with the brand in terms of the people they speak with? And then that translates more operationally. Did that piece of content perform well or not uh, as a result? So yeah, that, that would be the the three pillars that uh, you just mentioned. So I guess your producer uh, did her homework really well.
1: Anything with her, she just does uh, incredible. And she's going to listen to this part. So uh, one, one more thank you, Micah. Thank you so much. I, I didn't... Uh, think about this until the answer that you provided. So I don't know how I guess uh, possible this is, but I guess I'm just gonna put it out into the ether anyways. Could somebody let's just say they're looking for a a business to run? They don't have anything yet they haven't they haven't selected a product they haven't selected a vertical. Could somebody go uh, sign on to Affluence and actually use the uh, the, the data at hand? to help figure out what might be a market in need of in need of servicing? Short answer, yes. Longer answer,
0: also yes. I'm going to zoom out before getting into the specifics. So the, the scope of a product is very end-to-end. So we can do influencer discovery. So how do I, as an e-commerce company, identify influencers I want to work with? Influencer management. So how do I run campaigns? Or how do I use my IRM, my influencer relationship management, to really manage influencers in large volumes at minimum effort? A free Influencer payout. So how do I pay influencers um, in a variety of currencies uh, or in a variety of countries, which comes with compliance issues and so on and so forth. And last, how do I measure performance? How do I track sales? How do I track ROI and all that fun stuff? So that's very much the the scope of the product. Now, if we focus on discovery, the way we can do influencer discovery is two ways. And I'm going to uh, reuse two words that uh, you like, which is inbound and outbound. Inbound capacity is, let's say, I will connect my Shopify store to Upfluence. And thanks to that, Upfluence will identify in your existing client base who's an influential client. And that's going to be quite significant uh, in a number of ways. But number one, because instead of starting from zero, you're going to start at a few hundred, a few thousand, depending on how big your customer base is, uh, number one. But number two, this is going to be as authentic as it gets because these people, in spite of being influencers, they'll already love your store. Sufficiently to have to have spent basically their own money from their own pocket to buy your product. Free, you've already bought your product. You may not have to resend one, so you might you know save time, uh, save money, save you know some logistics and so on. Or and use that gain to be more generous with influencers or more incentivizing with influencers. And last, speaking of incentives, we've measured that what we call inbound influencers are seven times more likely to accept an affiliate relationship, so not being paid something upfront, but being paid on success. If they are paid upfront, they would be basically uh, cutting their price in half because they already love your brand. So in a world where you really want to maximize your ROI as an e-commerce company, this is absolutely fantastic. So that's the inbound way. The outbound way, which is more of a traditional legacy sort of way to do it. It's like me, the e-commerce, will reach out to you, Joseph, the influencer. I will pitch you my business. Uh, I will pitch you a value proposition. You may or may not open my email. You may or may not respond, or you may or may not uh, respond positively. But basically, there's going to be some loss in my funnel of, uh, of activations. right? And so to get back to your question, that second scenario, usually you have to create some sort of a query plan where you will type a number of keywords, a number of brands, and that will give you uh, some more filters stories. Uh, which platforms am I looking on? What kind of audience do my influencers need to have? What kind of language do they speak? And basically you can use these Um, semantic parameters to really try to narrow down opportunities that might be underserved or overrepresented in the influencer world. Because every time you will tweak a parameter, we'll show you uh, snapshots of a database of influencers. So let's say you change one keyword, the number of uh, addressable results will go from 10,000 to 20,000. say, okay, so you know maybe if I narrow down on that new keyword I've just added, I can actually try to see a very specific niche of influencers that might be underrepresented. And in a world, yes, that can definitely help you finding niches uh, on the supply side. However, I would definitely second that with some more additional res- research. Our uh, existing products on Amazon how well do they do? And, you know, like, there's a number of ways you can uh, get tactical about your
1: um, about your product research. There it is, right. Tactical. I came right now. I, I was waiting for it. Now that Shopify has upgraded to version 2.0, we needed to make sure we were up to speed. So we've released version 4.0 to ensure that we're 100% equipped to take advantage of the 2.0 revolution. If you haven't upgraded your store, head on over. And if you haven't gotten started, now's as good time as any. Here's another one. Again, this one fits more into the silly, but you never know kind of question. So another um, broad-reaching example is uh, if you look at the world of, of, of wrestling. Again, once upon a time, people used to go in person, although I think they're opened up and now I lose track of that. And they are, their success is quantified by their ticket sales and their, and their revenue. Um, but, you know, even as far back as, you know, the 80s and the 90s, you know, a convincing man would say something like, you know, our goal is to put smiles on people's faces. And that's a little bit harder to quantify um, because you don't know if everyone who paid were really satisfied so much so that they'll come back and watch it again. To bring this into into our discussion here is... Is there a, a nebulous area that has been somewhat out of reach or difficult to, to quantify, you know, whether it's engagement or whether it's, it's, it's consumer satisfaction uh, with the product? Is there a strategy or are there tactics that are, are being worked on to try to reach into this um, uh, difficult space?
0: Again, there are a few different angles uh, to, to answer this. In the realm of things that are harder to quantify, you can still look into how well-received uh, a certain post is uh, by an influencer, by his audience, made by an influencer, but how well is it received by his audience by doing some. Um, sentiment analysis on the comments, for example. So you will get a sense of, are these comments negative, positive, neutral? And you know uh, how how does that change from post to post? Is it better, not as good as a baseline and, and, and things like that? Um, that's one way to sort of color, to give some context to, to something that's purely numerical. Um, that would be one thing. But more on the client side, which I believe was more of your question, the beauty of it is it's one, for an e-commerce brand, influencer marketing, and just one more acquisition channel, right? So if you already have your full stack and your full funnel setup, and I guess one client uh, purchases is on the checkout page. It just uh, completed the transaction, but it comes from an influencer marketing. Then you are you are going to be if you track properly, you are going to be able to segment all of these and say, okay, how well um, are these clients doing on the retention basis? You know, what's the repeat purchase? What's the CLV, the customer lifetime value? Is it higher, or lower than my SEO clients? Is it higher, or lower than my Facebook ads clients, and so on and so forth? Right and sorry, I'm going to go further. If let's say you have a review campaign, you use Yotpo, for example, and after purchase, we receive a couple of emails to leave a leisure review and you can compare the average of these reviews from influencer-generated clients as opposed to other clients. And really, when you work as a cohort basis, you can really see how well it does or not. And it's true that Influencer marketing is unique in that way that as an e-commerce company, you have, you have to give up control, editorial control over this, right? The influencer knows what works and what doesn't work with their audience. And so they sort of re- reappropriate themselves with your messaging, with your product, and they pitch it to the audience and they phrase, you know, and that might not be how you as a business would phrase it. So there is indeed a chance that there's some dissonance between what your message usually is and the message that the influencer puts out. So it's true, and all the more important is to track everything to make sure that it's aligned and you're at least performing uh, adequately compared to your baseline and ideally overperforming, because there's this thing psychologically that it's. Always more trustworthy to hear someone else tell something good about your business than yourself, right? It sounds silly, but uh, it's uh, it's um, you know proven by time. Um, and so, as a third party, even though there's often time a commercial relationship between the brand or the e-commerce and an influencer, um, th- this is still something that tends to work really well into convincing uh, influencers to move down in the consumer purchasing uh, journey. Yeah, I would say measure it. Have a very strong stack. Uh, try to have a very good sense of your unit economics, and that's how you are going to be able to determine how good these influencers are doing.
1: And also, I, I just wanted to comment too that I think if it comes across as the more commercial it comes across, I think the more of a uh, of an ill fit that it is. So let's just say I'm you know I'm I'm selling um I'm selling shoes, and then I go to uh, an, an influencer who. Prior to, you know, loves talking about it, has a collection and is a, and is a very natural fit for, for, for my product. I think the level of perception of commercial there is so minimal that I, that I, that it's such a smooth fit. Whereas if, you know, I'm starting to expect a little bit more behavior out of them to use the terms that I use, you, you you mentioned the dissonance there between how they talk versus how I expect them to talk, then it starts to come across. So I, this, this is me putting it together in my head. And you can tell me if I'm wrong, of course, but the more somebody gets the the more the the, the audience, the co- the consumer feels that it's coming across as marketing, the less successful that this connection is in the first place.
0: So I generally agree with a few exceptions. The way I look at this, it's very much a spectrum, um, at the end of which, on one hand, there's Absolute control, meaning the brand will send to influencers a very strict brief saying, these are the words you're allowed to use. These are the words I don't want you to use. This is uh, the time of day, day of week you're going to publish. These are the hashtags, this, this, this. Um, and these are the do's and don'ts, essentially. For a lot of brands, this is super important. Either because they are in regulated industries. Uh, let's say they sell alcohol. They say uh, online you know, gambling. This, and so they need to be extremely cautious about what they do and what they don't do. or Luxury brands who are need to have a very tight grip over their marketing um, because you know you still need to uh, portray that uh, exclusivity and this uh, you know everything that goes into luxury marketing. So these people tend to have a very strong control and that tends to be very strong requirements. And guess what? Influencers need to be paid for that, right? If it takes them twice as long as uh, you know, to do a, a collaboration with your brand as any other brand, they're going to charge you for it. So there's um, an element of cost, but there's also an element of return because I agree with you with measured this. Um, when the process is too strict, it tends to deteriorate her performance as well. The other extreme of the spectrum is influencer does whatever the hell they want you know I don't give them a brief just send them a product they can criticize it if they want uh, you know they can say good things they can do a mix of both absolute authenticity um, they say what they want to say which works in a number of ways the uh, activation rates are much higher because you know there's less string attached, so the brand, the influencers are more likely to say yes like again it's a trade-off right uh, but you you might actually uh, dig your own grave and get some influencers to say some things negative about, about you even though you've put in all the work to find them and so on you know it's it's a and take my take is that you have to get somewhere in between not necessarily in the middle i'm I'm still more um, uh, leaning towards uh, giving freedom to the influencer Um, but Really try to find a good good middle ground that makes sense, where the influencer can be as genuine as humanly possible. Really use their voice. That's what will work best. Will echo best with their audience. But what well, will perform best from a social media perspective, and at the same time, it will not come across as uh, as uh, you know too marketing, too advertising uh, as a message.
1: Yeah. Well, there's one caveat um, in all of that that I would uh, hope that as a, you know as a seller, I would have some control over, which is if I send it to an influencer and they don't like it they can tell me that privately, they can provide their feedback, but say, look, if you don't like it, we would be happy to hear your feedback, but you know, don't say that out loud. You know, we'll, we'll take the feedback privately. I I would hope that I can put that on the table. So a lot of brands do that. And that's, uh,
0: that makes a lot of sense. Um, some brands um, go one step further, which is you're free to say anything negative that you want, but it has to be proportionate so you know, if you say uh, a mag- don't say a majority of negative things, but you can throw in you know one or two negative things or things that you like less, and if the rest of the uh, content is mostly uh, uh, positive, it's actually a good way to bring credibility, in my opinion. Um, you know, it's it's like when you shop on Amazon, if you have a product that only has five star, uh, it's usually a little suspicious, as opposed to something who has four point seven. Yeah, you know, I, I think it brings credibility and again authenticity and uh, you know, something a little bit more genuine.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So in uh, in 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 a, in a summation, um, to say, hey, look, you know, you, you can list the pros, and if you identify some cons, you can list those too. I think most people are used to uh, seeing a pro- pros and cons list. Um, so again, yeah, I and I and I agree. It's it's putting together in my head is look if it's if it's pure positivity, that's well. Seeing it charitably disingenuous, so uh, it probably helps to have a little bit of um of some of some of the downsides as well, just so you know. Hey, this is a real product. This exists in the real world. Nothing's perfect. We're not perfect, and and there you go. So that makes sense. I've only got you for um well not to, not too much longer. So there is one. This is more like a backstory question, more something that I'm taking a personal interest in. Um, but before I ask you that one, I always want to just give you know my my guess in situations such as this. A chance, is there anything else? about this, maybe there's a question I hadn't asked, or are there any other elements to your to your business you wanna make sure our audience uh, takes away today? I know, I think you did an excellent
0: job asking the questions. Uh, one uh, one maybe message in a bottle uh, I can throw out there and um, I'll send you a link uh, if that makes sense to share it in the show notes. But uh, um, if uh, any of your listeners are interested in experimenting with influence marketing, uh, they can go on our website, influence.com, book a demo, and they will speak for half hour with one of our experts. Uh, they'll get the chance to to discuss their objectives, or business, but also look into the product and see if it could be a good fit for them. And um, and yeah, from then on, make a, a decision if that could be a good route to pursue.
1: Yeah, excellent. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. I, I asked that question a few times and it, I always be like, no, no, you did fine, you're great. I'm like, no, oh, I wasn't fishing for that, but I'll take it. Okay, <laughs> now, uh, here's something that stuck out to me from your profile. Uh, is because you went to school for, for entrepreneurship, correct? Correct, yeah. Okay. What's distinctive to me is entrepreneurship tends to and you know I've talked to a number of people who can back this up is entrepreneurship tends to emerge from a uh, from a rejection of structure, whether that is school or work family unit um, whatever um, whatever that may be so to my recollection, which is you know above adequate, uh, this is the first time that I've even seen you know an entrepreneurship course so what was? the, you know, what was the experience in a structured environment designed to nurture independence? A a tiny bit of context. In France, business school is five years. You start
0: right out of high school and then you study until your master's, right? Um, And usually what happens is you do a very generalist business management approach for the first few uh, three years, and then the last two you specialize. And so, I was given the chance to specialize in marketing or in finance, in uh, auditing and control, and you know, all of these sort of usual suspects of a specialization courses in business school. But I'm more of a generalist myself, and I didn't want to specialize in any of these. And uh, you know, so what do I do? And uh, it turns out that they had this generalist course where you still do, you know, a high level uh, approach to a lot of different areas of business, but you don't really have to pick. And they called it the entrepreneurship course. So I jumped on the opportunity. Plus it was a double degree program with a university in Scotland in Edinburgh. Uh, so I had the time of my life for a year there. I definitely agree that entrepreneurship comes from some degree of wishing of rejection of, uh, of structure. Um, I, had done internships in the larger companies and I hated every single second of it. Um, I had done uh, internships in startups and small structures and I had an absolute blast. So I knew sort of what kind of. Size of an organization I was comfortable in working with, I knew had some entrepreneurial drive. Had you know always uh, had a lot of initiatives as a kid. Uh, you know I had a metal band where which I was managing. I was picking up the phone to book you know, venues and everything. So you know I, I sort of had it you know in, in my personality. So I knew I was going to get there eventually. But I wanted to get a little bit of experience uh, first. So that's why I worked for a couple of years, three years uh, in in someone else's startup uh, and starting to make mistakes on my own on the side. And then when I felt confident enough uh, at the ripe old age of
1: 25, I started up with it that clears that up. So, uh, and, and, and I appreciate, you know, if somebody wants, because I think with the, a lot of people, the, the fearfulness of going into college or going into university is, well, I don't know what, what to do yet. So I, I, I mean, I guess I'll just, uh, I'll just go and then the end up specializing in something that they don't want to, you know, I know a lot of people that have had to pivot. So to see an environment that actually encourages, you know, stay general, stay loose and just, you know, keep an open mind and, and to have a course that actually um, uh, supports and, and nurtures that is a breath of fresh air. Well, uh, we're going to, we're going to wrap this up. Um, so my, my final question for you is usually like, hey, if you have any parting wisdom, you're welcome to share that. And you are, uh, but I wanted to modify it a little bit specifically for you just because, you know, of th- there's, this is such an emerging field in an emerging field of, of e-commerce. So um, my question to you as well is also, what do you see are some of the next major milestones in influencer marketing or where you see the, the industry going from here? And then with, all of that in mind and then just let the audience know how they can uh, figure out uh, more about what you do and what you're up to.
0: I think it's been true for most things in the world of marketing technology and uh, influencer marketing will be no exception of that. Uh, number one, it will become even more outcome-based. Number two, it will become more automated. That's my my two predictions. Uh, and to to give more context around these two, every emerging new... Hot marketing channel. Usually, it's a little bit magic, right? There's very little numbers behind. Uh, people just see if it works or not, and they're not sure what to look after. So you know, that's that was sort of uh, ten years ago in influence marketing. Then they started to look at uh, the number of followers. Then, a little bit lower in the funnel, we started to look at engagement, and now we're starting to look at conversions. and you know how much money am I making? What's my RI on this? And I believe it's been, it's still marginal today, and that's uh, something that App actually uh, specializes on, and we're uh, one of the very few in the industry to to do just that, and I believe um, the rest of the industry will you know will demand more and more. RI uh, drivenness. I <laughs> don't know if that word exists uh, in the future. So that, that's the one thing. Um, and if you look at uh, all the other you know, companies uh, in the MarTech space, they ended up going that route. The second one is automation. Influencer marketing is still quite labor intensive, even though tools like AppFluence really streamlined the process and you can do uh, you know, a lot more influencer marketing work in a lot less of the time. That being said it's still quite labor intensive. And so uh, what Affluence is working on um, is really to automate the full process. So it becomes basically a, a cash generating machine on autopilot, right? That's mm-hmm. very much the, the end game here. And again, uh, when you look at companies like Clavio, like Chiotpo, or a little bit more in the past, uh, Marketo, uh, Parda, Artilocoa, like all these companies who had a ton of success, they all, Added a layer of automation. HubSpot, of course, uh, Mailchimp. They all added a layer of automation to what they did, and that's what contributed to to their success. So, yeah, I I, I strongly believe these are two things that are going to be extremely important moving forward.
1: Amazing. Well, I I just have to say my my takeaway from this uh, is you know now that I get to put this piece uh, into into the puzzle is that depending on you know what we're talking about, sometimes I'm gung ho about automation, sometimes I'm uneasy about it. In this case, I'm actually rather enthused about it because. It, there is such a personal uh a element of it it's it, you know it it's one thing to write an ad that tries to appeal to thousands of people it's another thing to um work with another person another human being who's trying to appeal to thousands of people so to have a lot of you know a lot of the work done actually helps make sure that the connections that we are trying to make are the most informed and, th- and thoughtful ones that that uh that are good for everybody involved so that's that's my uh, takeaway. Is uh, is ra- there's a rather optimistic, I must say. That's absolutely right. So once more, I believe that is an upfluence. Um, so they can find you probably on the website. Just uh, run through the, the your socials, your presences, all of that, and then we'll get you on out of here.
0: So um, the website is upfluence.com. From there, you'll see all of our company social. Personally, you can reach out to me uh, on Quora. Actually, I'm quite active. I try to answer a lot of questions there, but mostly on LinkedIn. I believe I'm the only Vivian Garnes uh, on the LinkedIn. So um, feel free to add me a connection, drop me a line, and uh, I'll try my
1: best to to answer them all. Okay. Well, I will send uh, Micah to reach out to you on LinkedIn then. because I a... All right. It's funny. I talked to somebody who's been on LinkedIn before and I anyways so i don't know i i I have to get over my my problem with that that'll be my my uh, my my goal for today okay to my audience it is an honor and a privilege to collect this information use it for my own benefit and then share it with all of you so with that thank you so much for your participation vivian it's been a great hour great to meet you great to talk to you great to learn uh, so much from you so thank you for everything that you've done today and with that take care we will check in soon thanks for listening you might have found this show on many number of platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you. So whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at Debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to Debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next.